Cool. Right. Um, so we're reading from James chapter 2, I hope. Um, <laughs> verses 1 through 10 and then 14 to 17. Um, all the way through? Okay. Cool. Um, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eye of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Thanks, Mimi. Can I just pray for Tim before he speaks to us? Father, we just uh, thank you that you long to speak to your children. And Father, we long to hear from you. And so, Lord, we just ask that by your Spirit you would just anoint him as he brings your word to us. And Father, that your Spirit would open our hearts and our minds and make us receptive to what you have to say. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Mark. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Uh, we live in a world where it's just relentless 24-hour news, isn't it? Whether you're on Sky or whether you're on the BBC News Channel, news flashes come up. Uh, if you're anything like me, my homepage is the BBC News website. I love one of the first things I think about doing in the morning is just popping onto that to see what the news is. Um, uh, my phone, my iPhone, uh, it automatically gets updates um, from BBC and Sky News when something breaks, it comes through. Uh, my Twitter feed is always buzzing. Uh, Twitter, in fact, is one of the most fast ways of getting news, actually. Often I get news on Twitter before it breaks on, um, uh, on TV. It's quite staggering, actually, how quick, because people who are there who see it or tweet come straight through, get splashed out everywhere. And we live in this relentless world where information, and particularly news, is relentlessly coming at us, full pelt, full tilt. And if I'm honest, it never ceases to amaze me how immune we can sometimes become to that, how indifferent we can um, become to kind of big, big stories. 
we have this sort of threshold that we can reach and then we almost shut down, we become numb or we just switch off from it or we can't take it anymore. Perhaps emotionally we, we, we become immune almost to some of those tragic stories. I guess the truth is perhaps we only become really deeply affected by stuff when it either affects us personally, circumstances around us, someone we know and love, or it's right there in our face and it provokes us. Um, many of you will know this summer I went to Spain on holiday uh, and, and we drove. Uh, in case any of you didn't know, um, Spain, I've discovered, is a long way away. Um, it didn't look very far on the map, just a few inches, but trust me, it's a long way. Uh, but for, fortunately, my family are all still talking to me, <laughs> my three children. Uh, uh, we've come back with the same number of children, uh, and they're all still talking. So I, that's the kind of win, I think, probably, in terms of driving all the way to Spain in a fairly small car. Uh, and and it, was, it, was, it was great. It was actually a really, really great holiday. Great to be there as family. Uh, next year, we're going to fly, if we go anywhere. Um, but we drove, and I had booked the Channel Tunnel way, 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 way in advance. Uh, and I was aware, obviously, of the gr- this growing crisis that had been happening and talk of kind of refugees and camps being built in Calais. Uh, but I suppose to all intents and, pu- uh, and purposes, most of what I had been hearing, most of what had been on the news was generally um, uh, about um, holidaymakers becoming very irritated, increasingly frustrated, um, lorry drivers uh, a, a bit irritated as well, and channel tunnel authorities and um, ferry kind of operators just increasingly becoming stressed by the pressure that was being caused, the delays that were being caused, all the rest of it. And if I'm honest, probably at that time, most of what I had been reading, or most of what we'd been seeing or sensing in the UK, was fed by what I call fairly jingoistic UK headlines about migrants uh, and about the ha- hassles of um, fear-mongering, um, anti-Johnny foreigner kind of headlines, which were quite prolific throughout the summer, people taking out jobs, etc., and moaning about the hassles that were being caused to people's holidays. So it was with, with some irritation as I approached the Channel Tunnel back in early August uh, we'd been flying along, we left ridiculously early in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, which is an hour that I think is clearly sort of only happened after the fall. Um, I think the day started around about 10 pre-fall. Uh, so very early in the morning, we'd been soaring along the motorway, having a fantastic clear journey, got to probably within about 20, 20 minutes drive of the Channel Tunnel and discovered Operation Stack was back in progress, and for those of you that don't know what that is, that's where they parked all the lorries along the M20, I think it is. Uh, and so what happened is you had to come off the motorway, which would have taken us about 15 minutes, and then driving up, up vale and down, uphill, down vale, across all this Kentish countryside, through all these villages, taking seemingly, felt like forever. It's probably only about 40 minutes, but it kind of made us uh, just that extra bit of journey. But what I saw staggered me absolutely staggered me. As we drove through many of kind of quiet little village, sign after sign, scrawled in blood red paint usually, on a white sign, at the end of gravel driveways, pinned up to lovely box hedges, nailed to kind of village trees where the cricket kind of ground was. 
and these, all these signs, and, and I can understand, don't get me wrong, I understand the frustration of these villages who are having their idyllic Kentish countryside slightly spoiled by traffic queues and noise. It must be kind of frustrating. But all of these signs were directed at stopping these leeching scum foreigners and scroungers. The language, I, w- I was utterly shocked. F in this, blind in that. Unbelievable signs in this nice, quaint English countryside. Foreign scum. We should be putting minefields, was one of the signs I saw. Why are we letting them in? They're better off dead. I mean, just, I was really, really shocked at the kind of reaction that had been caused in these nice little villages, obviously. It's amazing, I think, that when our comfort, when our stability, when the norms of our sort of social, our social norms are rocked, are challenged, that one too often response can be simply to hit back, to get angry, to vociferously judge and mock or even turn to violence, I think. Or perhaps in frustration and fear, often what we do, particularly as English people, is that we maybe turn our heads away, we bury our heads in the sand, we say, well, it's not my problem. We don't want to get involved and we pretend perhaps it's not going to affect me and maybe the problem will go away. This chapter of James, as you read James, James kind of doesn't, (laughs) he doesn't take it easy. He just goes for it. He says what he thinks. And in the first book, the first chapter of the book of James, James draws out this vision of what it means to be a faithful child of God, what it means to be uh, someone who loves God. That if we say we love God, then there should be some sort of demonstration in our actions, in our human lives. What does it mean to be a Christian? That, that term Christian was coined back in the early days, almost as a, not mocking, but a kind of sweet, oh, they're Christians. Because Christians literally means little Christ. All these little Christians, they're sweet, they're trying to be little Jesuses. And actually the Christians thought, actually, yeah, that's, yeah, I can live with that. That's exactly what I want to be. So kind of took it on as a name. And James is saying, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Actually, if we really are little Christ, if we're choosing to follow God and love God, then something in our lives should begin to show, should be manifest, should be different. Life apart from God, James assures us, will yield to all sorts of destructive desires leading people to sin, spiritual and physical death. It's a really big deal. And James is urging the church, he's writing this letter to say to the readers, will you take on your identity as a little Christ? Will you take on your identity as a true child of God by living a way that the Father wants us to live? Like Father, like Son. Taking on the nature, the quality of God. He says that our faithfulness to God needs to be wholehearted, consistent, And it should be evidenced by our actions, by our deeds. That's what we heard in that chapter. What good is faith without deeds? It's not that your deeds save you. We're not talking about um, salvation by works. But he's saying, because it's all about grace. But actually, if we as children of God are saved by grace, then the outworking of that must be some sort of works that come out. How can we be anything other than serving God and serving humanity in his love? Well, says James, that's all very good in theory, but let's look at what actually happens 
in the churches that James was writing to, and sadly, maybe in churches up and down this country and through history. When an elegantly, beautifully dressed man, gold-fingered and in radiant clothing, comes in, visits the church, is he treated as more special, with warmer welcome, with a bigger embrace, than with a homeless beggar in filthy rags, asks James. And James suspects that churches will often give the snazzy dresser a more prominent place, and the rather fragrant, vagrant, if you can use that expression, a place to sit maybe near the back or away from people where he won't disturb people. Stand over there, sit at the back, just sit to one side slightly. I think the truth is, despite our best intentions, the reality for all of us is that often we are swayed by appearances. We can be affected by what we see. And whether that's physical or spiritual or educational or emotional poverty, to use that word, it can often trouble us and make us wary because we get a bit worried that it's going to disturb our nice, neat, organised church. Church is trouble-free. And when some people come in, we're worried that it's going to cause trouble. And sometimes church can be really, really messy, really, really tricky. When I worked for a church in Bristol called Woodlands, it grew And as we grew, we attracted all sorts of people. And some of them were quite interesting. There was one night, I may have shared this before, there was one night when I was leading worship at Woody's, and we'd grown to about 500. The church was probably the length of this right the way through, a bit further. And I was on stage leading worship, as I often do with my eyes closed, because I find that least scary and can connect with God a bit. And I was leading worship quite happily, lost in worship wonder and Matt Redman probably. And suddenly I heard this thunk. And I opened one eye and couldn't see anything. And as I closed my eyes and, and looked down, there was a melon on the floor. I was standing on, kind of on, the, on the, the stage area like this. And I thought, there was, a, there was a big yellow melon. It's amazing what goes through your head at a moment like that. That was not one nearly disappeared down the hole. Anyway, I closed my eyes because what do you do when there's a melon on the front of you? I just closed my eyes. And, and shortly afterward, heard another... And I looked down, and there were, there were two melons. I looked up, and there was a melon rolling down the centre of the aisle. It's melon number three. Now, by this point, I thought, this is, not, this is really not happening. Lord, what are you trying to say to me through this vision? <laughs> but at the back of the church, right at the back of this church, was this slightly dishevelled-looking lady with big bags from Sainsbury's, clearly overflowing with melons and she reached into the bag and took another one and bowled it down the middle of the church (laughs) what was brilliant was all of us being typically English we just closed our eyes and carried on (laughs) no one was going to ask her why she was bowling melons no one was going to stop her bowling melons wasn't really causing any damage and I kind of just thought right whatever you know fruit cocktail at the end of the service Life became a bit like that at Woodlands quite often. I mean, sometimes it was harmless, people bowling melons. (laughs) Sometimes it was people running headlong at the preacher, and we were having to jump on them before they got there. We had quite an interesting time. What it meant was that church was no longer organized and neat and tidy the whole time. Sometimes it was really messy. 
Sometimes there were people that came in who were really broken. Sometimes there were people who came in who were really high or really drunk. And in that moment, how do you deal with people who aren't neat and nice and organized? Some of them came in really smelly. Some of them came in really, really broken. Some of them came in mentally ill, really struggling. I remember one night praying for someone who ended up becoming quite a dear friend. And I prayed for him and he he was struggling with mental health issues and with schizophrenia. And I was praying for him and I said, at the end of the prayer, I said, in the name of Jesus, Amen. He went, Amen. Hang on a minute. I'm Jesus, aren't I? That was a bit of a confusing moment. As I kind of went, oh, no, 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 no. He said, no, I am. I think you'll find I am. Oh, my goodness. Sometimes life can get complicated and messy. Do we want neat, organized, safe church? Or do we want a place where those who are broken and in need can come in? And sit alongside those who are whole and have been made whole by the love of Jesus. And there'd be no difference between them. Whether they're millionaires or on the breadline. Whether they have much or have nothing. Whether they seem to be all sorted or whether they seem to be evidently broken. Well, the reality is we all have challenges. We all have issues. None of us are there yet. And we're all on a journey together. And I long for the day when church can be a safe family. A place that we can embrace the least, the last, the lost and everyone in between. That's what James is saying here. Let's not distinguish people by how they look or the troubles they may have, because we've all got our issues. But if church is a place of love and embrace, it's a family, then somehow, with the grace of God, you can work together and love together and bear with one another and care for one another. That's what Sarah was saying last week. In October, November, December, we're going to be looking at all the one another's. What does it mean to love one another? What does it mean to prefer one another, to honour one another? To forgive one another. There's a whole load of the one another's in the Bible. There's about 66, depending on what translation you use. And we're going to look at some of them. Because God is calling us to be a community where we love one another. Whether you're a student, whether you're working, whether you're a mum at home or a dad at home, whether you're unemployed at the moment, whether you're really successful in your career or whether you're just struggling to know the way ahead, whether you're really, really, really young or really, really, really not so young. I'm not looking at Peter Jones, because I always pick on Peter, okay? And I'm not going to do it anymore. (laughs) I think maybe I just did. Sorry, Peter. (laughs) Whatever background you come from, whether you're from an educated background or from a working class background, whether you vote Tory or Labour or who are the others? Lib Dems, UKIP, anyone. We want to be family. We want to love one another. And that's difficult, and it's sometimes a challenge. God is a God of the poor, though. I'm really committed to us understanding that. We see that in Scripture. We see that with Jesus. He was friend to the friendless. He was known as a friend of sinners. That was a real slur. I've said that before that was used of Jesus. People said of him, ah, he's a friend of sinners. And Jesus would have looked at them and smiled and gone, yep, that's me. And because he's a friend of sinners, that's why he's your friend and my friend. It's good news for us. And we're people who have struggled from a place of sin to a place of freedom and hope. We're all on that journey. Jesus reached out to the prostitute, to the homeless, to the bewildered, to the refugees, to those who are homeless. 
he touched the unclean, the lepers. I find that one of the most moving stories in Scripture. I know, I know I've talked about this before, but in John's Gospel, where he reaches out to the leper. I don't think we understand how powerful that was. I was preaching in Hawfield Category A prison a few years back, and the lifers came in. People say that, that, that a prison these days is like a holiday camp. One of the most terrifying places I have ever been. Absolutely terrifying. And these guys came in. These were the Category A's who, they were paedophiles, they were murderers, they were people who were kind of hardcore kind of guys. And I would felt God wanted me to preach on the passage of Jesus healing the leper. And there was a room full of these guys came in, tattoos, shaving, you know, that was just my wife. And then they all came in, that's not true. Then they all came in and sat down and I was really scared. And I started talking about Jesus. And these guys just started welling up when I talked about the story of Jesus reaching out to the leper, to the untouchable of the day. And the leper longed to be healed and said, if you're willing, Jesus, please heal me. And Jesus looks at the leper, this man who would have been an outcast for years and years. No one would have been able to, he couldn't have been welcomed into a family. He would have been kept outside of the community. He wouldn't have been able to go to the temple to worship because he was ritually unclean. So he would have been socially, spiritually, emotionally a refugee, an outcast, right out of the town. And here he is somehow has come before Jesus and pleased with Jesus and says, Jesus, if you're willing, please heal me. And we know that Jesus has often spoken words and brought healing to people by his words. Words carry real power. I was preaching on that at St. Tom's this morning. And Jesus could have just said the word, yeah, be healed. But he doesn't. He does this really beautiful thing. He says, yes, of course I'm willing. And he reaches out and he touches this guy. This man who's richly unclean. He couldn't do that as a rabbi. Because as soon as you touch a leper, you're defiled. He wouldn't have been able to operate as a rabbi and a teacher. He would have been doing everything wrong in that moment. He shouldn't have even been near this man, shouldn't have been talking to him. But what does he do? He reaches out and actually physically, he touches this man who's leprous. He touches him and says, yeah, I'm willing. Be healed. Can you imagine the moment for this man who wouldn't have been touched for years because he was richly unclean? And that's the heart of Jesus, isn't it? To not just say words, but actually to do something. Love in action, skin on skin. Transformation. He touches the unclean, the lepers, the adulterers. Do we? Do we as church? Do we as church, does the church in this city, does the church in this nation reach out without judgment, but with real mercy? Um, I don't know if you've noticed when you come into St. Matthew's Church, you, now Peter's done this spectacular job of clearing it, you might be able to see. When you come into the entrance hall, look up on the wall opposite you, there's these two old, really amazing signs dating back from the 1800s when the church was established here. Uh, and they speak of charities that were set up in that period that this church was kind of really birthed into. Uh, I meant to take a, a, a photo of it to remind myself of all the words. But there's a, there's a charity that was set up, and we still actually have a fund for some of this money that's been kind of been going down through the generations. It's provision for the care of widows and orphans in the parish. This beautiful charity that was set up to try and serve and to give practically to the widows and orphans. I find that fascinating that that's what the church here was birthed into. And in this season, it feels like God is stirring us again to get involved in reaching out 
not just to the widows and to the orphans, but to those who spiritually are orphans, those who don't know the fathering of God. To reach out to the lonely. I met a woman on, this, on the hill here a while ago, lives in one of the massive houses up there. Probably a million pound house, I don't know. But she's so lonely. And actually, she's not really got any money. She lives in this ridiculously big house. But she's got no family. She doesn't know what to do with her finances. She's got no one to advise her. She's just on income support. And she's living up there profoundly lonely, isolated, afraid, vulnerable. We're called to love some of these guys. We're called to reach out, and I think part of that journey has to begin in our own hearts. After weeks of haranguing these refugees and passing them off, something happened uh, about a week and a half ago that seems to have changed something globally. I'm sure you probably saw it. There was a photo of a drowned three-year-old boy on a beach, face down in the sand, just the water lapping gently over him. It looked like he was asleep, this tiny little boy. Alan Kurdi, who's a Syrian Kurdish child, washed up on a beach a few miles away from a holiday resort. He was three years old, his brother was four years old, he drowned too, his mother also drowned. And somehow, as I, as others, maybe you saw it on Facebook, maybe you saw it in the news, maybe you saw it in newspapers, I don't know. Somehow this shocking photo of this tiny, vulnerable, innocent little boy down in the sand seemed to wake the world up. I don't know, for me, I struggle seeing any harm or damage to children. I can't watch stuff like that on telly, it just affects me so badly because there, but for the grace of God, could have been my child. My nephew, your child, your grandchild, your brother, your sister. And whatever the politics of what's going on at the moment, whatever's been going on, it was no longer suddenly about people, about refugees or migrants. It was about children, about a tiny child. It was about hundreds of children like Aylan who were fleeing, driving, driven from their home, by bombs, the threats of bombs and poison gas. And if I was in Syria with my children, I'd run to. And I'd want anywhere to take me, to take my children, to let them grow up in a place of safety instead of death. Now, I don't pretend to understand all the politics and all the root causes. I think we as Christians need to speak into that too, to challenge governments, to write, to pray, to petition. It's important that we have a voice that speaks into justice and politics. And if you're a Christian, you're a person, maybe one of the guys at Moncton or at university, and you've got a heart for politics, then we want to pray for you. We need men and women of integrity who will stand for a cause and speak out in truth. But I believe that we as Christians need our hearts to be transformed. Our humanity, Christ in us, Instead of judging like those signs, those unbelievable signs as I pass through this English villages, instead of judgment, we need to somehow respond with mercy. 
at the height of the Calais crisis, when I was, um, uh, I just got in Spain, I had an emergency text from a friend of mine, a vicar, who had recently, he got ordained with me, we trained in Bath here, got ordained, he's now vicar down in, Co- in Cornwall somewhere. And he got this, uh, he, he, he and some members of his church were really moved by the crisis that they'd seen in Calais, these camps, some 5,000 refugees, um, images of you know no food kids with no clothes well they just just as a church just decided to do something about it they thought they'd do a collection and some of them would drive over to calais uh, and just drop off some some collections of materials but he texted me and 40 other vicars because they put it on facebook just really saying we want to collect some stuff and they were being pilloried by the local community pilloried by the press I read some of the Facebook comments, which were just shocking. We need to let these people die. We should have armed soldiers on the Channel Tunnel. And if they're trying to come in, we should just shoot them. How dare you as a church try and help these scum? I was shocked. He was shocked. He was asking for prayer. So much judgment. They've got mobile phones. They're fine. Judgment was clearly, for many, triumphing over mercy. I mean, Jeremy's actions, Jeremy is the the vicar, they were never intended to be a political statement on immigration policies or migration policies. It was simply a Christ-like response to people's suffering, to a humanitarian disaster. He and his church were moved by the sight of children with no shoes, pregnant mothers with little or no sanitation, widows, orphans, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Last Sunday morning, I watched a video as I was preparing to go to church, uh, the morning service, that amazed and moved me. Some of you may have seen it on the BBC News website. A train full of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Syrian refugees pulled into Munich in Germany. And how were they received? As they got off the train and started walking on the platform, hundreds of Germans had gathered there and they just started clapping them as they walked along the platform and started cheering them. And children rushed forward with sweets to give to the Syrian sweet to children. And some of the guys there had bottles of water. They were just giving them bottles of water. But the thing that moved me was they just they clapped. And this whole crowd started clapping. The reporter who was there to report from the BBC, you could see he was suddenly really choked up. I don't think anyone was expecting this. There was something so moving and so beautiful in it. Just people offering warmth, love, welcome. Hope and love offered to aliens and homeless. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And as I watched, I couldn't help but feel the smile of God over these people. I don't know whether they were Christians, I don't know whether they were a church, but there were loads of them and these Germans just welcomed them. So how do we respond? What about for us to close? Well, we live in a beautiful city, don't we? A stunning city. The second safest city on earth, according to a recent poll. Good news. Nice place to bring up your children. Nice place to live. But we we, we need to not kid ourselves, you know. Actually, poverty exists right here in this city. In fact, right on our doorstep. And we're called to make a difference. We're called to demonstrate the love and mercy of Christ. 
In July, a small team invited by uh, a lady called Haley, who's our church cleaner here, lives down on a uh, estate just down the back here, these red brick houses, Dolmeads, fantastic little place. The other side of the road behind the infant school here, junior school, bordered by the cricket club on one side and the river on the back. Most people don't even know it's there. I was chatting to, my, to the archdeacon the other day, uh, who thinks what God's doing here is fantastic. He's lived in Bath for over 10 years. I said Dolmeads and he went, where? I hadn't even heard of it. Well, Haley invited a little team, just a few to go, because she'd got some contacts down there. Haley's not yet a Christian, but she's been really moved by what she's seen here. And she invited my wife, and I think uh, Debbie, and I think Victoria, and went down there into some of these houses who Haley knew were struggling. Found children with no clothes. Mums who couldn't afford to feed the kids and her, so would try and feed the kids. Another family where they went in about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning. Kids running around half naked, a bottle of vodka on the table. Mum trying to cope. You know, right on our doorstep there are people with real need. People in million pound houses up this hill who are lost and lonely. Afraid and isolated. And God is doing something remarkable. Many of these families down in Dolmade have said, look, is there a safe place where we can come and hang out, where we can just come and be to be loved and accepted as we are. And from October we're starting to sing where we're just going to let people come and be. We get, uh, Beth and Sarah and a few others are part of this. We want to call it Open Doors. We want to open the doors of the church and just give people some really good coffee, which is always a really good thing. Let them have kids have some great toys to play with. Let them come and have a fun, safe place. We're not talking about starting a project. We're just talking about trying to love people with Jesus' love. We're just trying to reach out as best as we can. You know, often we learn more from them than they learn from us. How can we respond? How can we all respond? Some of you are at school, some of you are at uni, some of you are working really busy lives. Well, I think God wants us to simply love wherever he puts us. To pray. Please pray for these communities. Please pray for this community where I just increasingly feel really moved as I'm walking about. Feel God's love for this community. Doors are opening to us to try and reach into to bring Christ's love. Maybe he wants you to give. Maybe you haven't thought about giving yet financially. Maybe God wants you to think about giving. There's ways that you can give to the work and ministry that God is doing here in the city. Do come and talk to us about that if you want to. We have a, <laughs> a bling font at the front here. You'll have noticed we don't take a collection as a church. We, we don't want to pass the bowl around because that's what church is often associated with we want people to give from their heart and give how and when God wants them to if you want to give to the church and you've got a bit of loose money every now and then you want to do that you can just put it in the font there there's sometimes a bowl in there if we remember to put it in there but if not just put it in the font there's no water in there it's fine (laughs) if you want to give that way if you want to give more regularly you can do that maybe God wants you to give some time some energy some resources. Some of you are already given clothes and toys and we want to create like a, a, a bank of food here that we can just bless some of these mums and families and some of the lonely people. We want to just, be, when they come here for a coffee, we want to say, hey, why don't you take a bag of food with you? Just because Jesus loves you and we want to bless you. Like I say, we're not talking about projects. We're just talking about love in action, doing the best we can with what has give, God has given us. We're also starting a pastoral team to reach out and visit and uh, be a friendly face, to have a coffee with people. If you're interested in doing that locally, being part of our pastoral team, then come 
and talk to me. But what we're going to do now is just respond and close with communion. And we're going to share some bread and some wine. We're going to do it really, really simply. We're going to, we're going to say a prayer in a moment. And I'm going to say a few words. And then we're going to have uh, a space at the front. Louise is going to come and help me with uh, distribute some bread and wine at the front. And Debbie and Mark are going to go at the back. And we're going to come and take some wine. Jesus gave us these physical symbols to remind us of his great sacrifice for us. His blood shed on the cross. His body broken. Scripture says, though we're many, we're one body. And we're part of God's body here in the city. We're connected with other churches by the very fact that we're children of God. Whitcomb Baptist, BCC, Freedom, All Saints Western, the Methodist Church, Holy Trinity came down. All shapes, all sizes, all denominations, we're one body here. May we, Lord, be your body in this city, your living body, but a body that's also broken, Broken by the poverty of humanity. Broken by what we see. Broken in our hearts, but healed by Jesus. And we bring healing with God's love. So I want to pray for us. Because we don't want to rush off and just be busy doing stuff. We need God to move our own hearts. Maybe some of you, God is calling to be involved in the refugee crisis. I don't know how, I don't know what that might look like. Maybe God wants you to pray. To reach out, to give, to serve, to offer support. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. But let's just close our eyes. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to pray for us and ask God's Spirit to speak to us, to move us. Father, will you fill us? May your love fill our hearts so that we can respond with mercy instead of judgment. May your love fill us so that in the places where we find ourselves, in the places that you've called us to be, in our spheres of influence, in our locations where we live, where we work, where we play, Lord, that we can respond with hearts of generosity, hearts of love, hearts that trust that you will more than need, meet our needs as we look to you, as we give. Lord, may we be lavish in generosity, lavish with our time, with our energy. May we do the things that you're calling us to do. May when we see an open door that you've opened, may we be bold enough to step through it. Lord, where our hearts are hardened, where we've become cynical at times or complacent or numb, will you soften our hearts? Jesus, you looked at the crowds who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and you were moved with compassion, deeply moved within you. Well, so too for us, your body here on earth, may we be moved by what we see, the needs we see around us. And may we respond as a body together with your love. Lord, not called to projects, but called to people, to love people with your Father's love. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Inspire us, challenge us. 
We welcome you. More of your spirit, Lord. Soften our hearts.